I don't uh, do the details of putting the bulletin together every week anymore, um, but for a while I would put a section in there in the bulletin uh, under the heading, Why Do We Do That? So each week there would be a paragraph um, in the bulletin um, that would explain one element of our liturgy, which is just a religious word that some people sometimes can be afraid of, but it just means the order of a religious service. And so this paragraph um, would briefly explain things like the apostolic greeting, the first thing that I say when I get up here on a Sunday morning. Um, it would explain the call to worship, why we pray a, a corporate repentance as well as an assurance of pardon, why the preaching of God's word is central to our worship, as well as the other various sort of elements of our worship services that are really fundamental to our life as a church. And so here's what I would put in the bulletin regarding the offerings. Question, why do we give money to the church as an act of worship? Answer, following prayers of repentance, giving money in a formal act of worship demonstrates hearts of genuine repentance and submission to Christ. For members of a local church, giving of offerings is prescribed in the New Testament for the purpose of glorifying God, 2 Corinthians 9, to 13 responding to His love and sacrifice for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, and meeting certain needs for others, Romans 15, verse 26, and Galatians 6, 6. It was to be done when the saints assembled on the first day of the week and in the worship service. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. When the lockdowns first started to develop in um, 2020, we met as the elders and deacons, and we discussed some of the practical implications um, of closing the church down for, at the time, uh, what seemed to be an indefinite period of time. Um, now, with regards to the lockdowns themselves, to quote the WHO, we won't get fooled again. But at that time, everything was unknown. We don't know, we didn't know at the time what to expect, and so we had discussions about implementing online giving. Uh, we looked into the mechanics of it, what it would take to set up, the, the fees involved, and there are fees. We looked into all of it. But in the end, we decided against implementing online giving because it because it moves the act of giving away from the corporate gathered worship of the church and in the realm, at least in our minds, of, of just another bill to pay. I'm not opposed to online bill payment. I do it myself as often as possible. But the support of the ministry of the local church is a different category. In fact, I firmly believe that giving is an act of worship in the same way that, that singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is an act of worship. And that in order for it to be genuine, it must come from the heart. Hearts that have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We also believe that it's an act of, of corporate worship, of gathered covenantal worship. Now, that does not mean that we give in order to be seen by men, but rather that we give together 
knowing that it is the Lord who is using us, His church, to build His kingdom. In fact, when you become a member of this church, um, one of our church covenant agreements is this. This is longstanding. It's not something new. I covenant to work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Now, over the past decade, um, this church has done a phenomenal job of supporting the work of the ministry. Uh, And not only of this ministry, but also, I can tell you this for New Path Pregnancy Resource Centers as well, Those efforts do not go unnoticed. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. One time in preaching on giving, um, Charles Spurgeon, one of my faves, said this. Did I say that? (laughs) I should stick to the notes. He said this. He said, further, this also seems to be the teaching of the text. And he was uh, he was specifically preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Spurgeon continues in preaching on that verse. He says, Give till you feel it. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was proved by the fact that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave till he felt it. Gave till he knew that he was giving all that he had. And and I do verily believe that the great sweetness of giving to God begins when we feel the pinch. When we have to deny ourselves in order that we may give. Then it is that there is the true spirit of Christian liberality. Our Lord Jesus Christ gets from a good many people what they would not dare to keep back from Him, and what they can readily enough part with. It is sometimes about as much as their shoestrings cost them in a year, certainly not as much as they spend upon the smallest of their many luxuries, yet the most of them consider that they have done all that they should when such insignificant offerings have been laid at their Lord's feet. But dear friends, I hope that it will be your rule both to give as you love and to give till you feel it. And then a little bit later in that same sermon, Spurgeon continues, he says, It is also noteworthy that with regard to Christian liberality, there are no rules laid down by the Word of God. I remember hearing somebody say, Yes, I would like to know exactly what I ought to give. Yes, dear friend, no doubt you would. But you are not under a system similar to that by which the Jews were obliged to pay tithes to the priests. If there were any such rule laid down in the gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving and take away all the bloom from the fruit of your liberality. There is no law to tell me what I should give my father on his birthday. There is no rule laid down in any law book to decide what, a, what present a husband should make to his wife, nor what token of affection we, we should bestow on others whom we love. No, the gift must be a free one, or it has lost all of its sweetness. Yet this absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather that you should give more. 
Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the term Christian liberality, it is to be according to the example of Christ himself. So let me um, sort of also make a statement that will, that will at first appear to contradict a little bit of what Spurgeon said there, but I believe this will all make sense as we work our way through this, and I think prove to not be contradictory at all, and at the risk of this, it might offend some, um, but here it is. When someone says something to the effect of, I don't give money, I give my time, you're actually violating God's perfect and holy law. The person who says, I don't give any money, maybe they have a reason or an excuse. Instead, I just, I give my time. That person is actually violating God's perfect and holy law. Now, hold on, because we have a little bit of work to do this morning. So I want to read this whole chapter. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to look at the first four verses today. Keep these things in mind as we read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, uh, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stop and pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word this morning. Give us ears to hear, help us to understand. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. 
Feed us today from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this, this final chapter of a, a letter that is epic in scope. Um, one thing that consistently has stood out throughout the letter, really, but especially in the last sort of half of the letter, is Paul's love for this church. We saw it last week, especially as we looked at that, that final charge of verse 58, chapter 15. He loves them. This, this church that's gotten nearly everything wrong, Paul loves them. He loves them as a father loves his disobedient and rebellious children. He loves them even as they have wronged him and, and pitted other ch- teachers against him, as they've promoted immorality in their midst and, and, and taken each other to court, as they've been swayed by various false teachers and doctrines and treated the Lord's table even with a, with a flippant contempt, yet he still loves them. These people and their struggles mattered to Paul. And do you know why? Because they matter to Christ. At some point after Paul had left Corinth, um, the book of Acts tells us that he also spent some time in Ephesus, where he found some disciples and he established a church there as well. And his experience in Ephesus, in, in many ways, is very similar to his experience at, at Corinth. And as he speaks to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, we're given some insight as to why these churches matter so much to Paul. So again, he's talking to the Ephesian elders, but the principle applies to the Corinthians as well as to us when he says in Acts 20 verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Redemption Bible Church matters to Jesus because you, Christian, were purchased with the blood of Christ. You matter to to Jesus Christ, because you were purchased with His blood. Now, having said all of that, reading this last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, reading this chapter is almost almost like reading somebody else's mail. Paul Paul mentions people by name in these these coming verses here that that we we know next to nothing about. Some of them are probably familiar, Timothy and Apollos, certainly, Some of them we don't know anything about. Um, He talks about his travel plans. That he's writing with his own hand. And and by the way, almost as an aside, at the very end, he says, and cursed are those who have no love for the Lord. Greetings. Timothy says hi. (laughs) Yet as he wraps up this epistle... All of these closing comments, all of these greetings, all of these admonitions are vital encouragements to a church that was struggling with the spirit of the age. So in this closing chapter, we can see some final expectations that Paul has for this this beloved congregation. He expects them to, to help him in his missionary efforts. 
He expects them to support Timothy. He expects them to recognize and submit to a specific group of men. And he starts in this, in this section here by, by evidently answering a question as to, as to how to organize the offering. Specifically, an offering that is directed toward the saints in Jerusalem, evidently. So let's break this into two sections, these four verses, as we look through just this opening of this chapter. Um, Two sections. In verse 1, we're going to see some common instructions. And then beginning in verse 2, 2, 3, and 4, he's going to lay out those instructions themselves. So some common instructions. Verse 1 again. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is that while there there seems to be, um, at least kind of textually, no direct link between these verses and what he's written about the resurrection in the previous chapter, right? He's changing the subject. But Paul's closing admonition there in verse 58, to to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, that is theologically connected leads naturally right into the the generosity of spirit that he's looking for with regards to the collection, right? You can see how these things are connected. I said earlier that that part of our church covenant agreement is is a promise to support the ministry, which is defined as the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. That's how we define it in our church covenant. And I would argue that one of the ways, in fact, uh, the primary way that the church is able to always abound in the work of the Lord is by financial giving through glad and generous hearts, knowing that even those labors, no matter how small, are not in vain. I just want to point out here, Paul does not actually explain why this collection is significant why it's even necessary. He doesn't tell us here. In his follow-up letter in 2 Corinthians, um, specifically in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to write a a much longer passage explaining, and and, and he works really in in those two chapters to to motivate this same church to give generously and and zealously. But, But here he just simply takes it for granted probably because he's responding to another question that they've asked him. That's why he uses that phrase, now concerning. Um, That's his signal that he's changing the subject back to something that they'd like answers about. They'd written to him about this. He's done that several times in this book. You probably remember in our study. We don't know exactly what their question was, but it seems likely from looking at his answers here, the way that he answers them, It seems like they were concerned about how the money would be handled, how it would be uh, kept safe, delivered to the right people, um, by the right people. These are good and basic stewardship questions, right? I want to point out something else that that might seem seem really minor at first, but um, I don't think it is. The collection. That's what he calls it. It's a very distinct word that Paul is using here. Um, And he does so in order to avoid any implication that this is a tax. Now, in our minds, we don't think of um, tithes and offerings as a tax. I I hope we don't think that way. 
Uh, we have a separation of church and state. It's part of our culture and society. We, we, we don't even put those two things together, but especially in ancient days, they would have put those together. Really, up until the modern era, the last few hundred years, those things were very tightly connected. But Paul is trying to, he's trying to avoid any implication that this is a tax, especially a repeated tax. See, the word tithe, which means tenth, he could have used that here. But whenever, whenever that word is used in the New Testament, it, it's used with reference to the Old Testament law, or, or specifically in connection with the Pharisees. So, for example, in the, um, in the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, as they both go in to worship uh, the Pharisee informs God in this loud, kind of boisterous prayer that everybody can hear. The Pharisee loudly prays, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the passage continues, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So it's not incorrect to say that, that under the Old Testament law, the tithe was a tax. It's not incorrect to say that. It's not quite right, but it's not incorrect. We're not under the Old Testament law. We're under Christ. This is what Spurgeon meant when he said, he said, you're not under a system similar to that by which the Jews were obliged to pay tithes to the priests. So what do we do with the concept of the tithe? Um, do we just throw it out? Or we could ask it this way, what do we do with that statement that I made earlier about the person who violates God's perfect and holy law that says something to the effect of, I don't give my money, I give my time. How are we both not under the law and yet violating God's law? Well, the answer is this, God's law shows us how to live as Christians. If you want to know what it means to be holy as He is holy, you must look deeply at God's law through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of Jesus Christ. So here's what that means. The tithe, a 10% offering. The, the tithe becomes the guide to help us become more Christ-like. But again, Jesus didn't merely give 10%. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We understand that, that that verse is not about money, right? That verse is about Jesus laying down his life that we might gain his righteousness, giving up everything. This is why Spurgeon was talking about giving until it hurts a little bit. So if you're a Christian, if you're a member of the church, and you're not financially supporting the work of the ministry, you are saying, I don't need to be conformed to the image of Christ in the area of finance. I want to say right here, I personally have no idea who gives what to the church. So this isn't some sort of passive-aggressive rebuke of anybody specific. Please understand that, <laughs> okay? I, I don't know. Um, if you feel convicted, that's that's the Holy Spirit, and you'll have to take it up with Him. But I also want to be clear that the church on the whole, this church on the whole, is very generous. The Lord continues to use you to meet our needs above and beyond. 
This is just simply, what we're talking about today is just simply what the Word of God says. And we also remember that none of us can give enough. We should be giving our very lives and everything we have back to the Lord. I never understood this. How could Zacchaeus, the tax collector, how could Zacchaeus possibly afford to give back fourfold? I'm not good at math, but I don't understand how that is possible. But I think that's the point, right? Remember this, even, even with regards to the law, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even with regards to, to this law, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he talks about this a lot more, Paul even calls giving a grace. So the law no longer condemns, but guides us in Christ-like generosity. Now, Paul mentions the churches of Galatia here in the first verse because he's already written, uh, we believe that at this point in time when he's writing 1 Corinthians, he's already written the letter to the Galatians, which Galatia is a region, and so there's a, um, a bunch of churches there. And so he's already written that. And so these are common instructions for the churches, not just specifically for Corinth, but for also the other churches that he's written to, the churches of Galatia, and it then becomes applicable to us. And so these are, these are common instructions. And along those lines, giving money, financial support, is actually a, a topic that Paul addresses not just here and in 2 Corinthians, but also in Galatians, also in Romans. And this tells us that this is about more than just simply the relief of the poor and persecuted living in Jerusalem. In fact, he's already spoken back in chapter 9 of the, we could say, the right of pastoral compensation. And I believe that he's implying even that very thing down in verses 10 and 11 and also in verse 18 and speaking of some others that are going to be coming into them. And then one more subtle point here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, he tells them that, that one of the motivations for giving is that it is a test and evidence of love. It's a test and evidence of love. This is why financial giving is so important to the Apostle Paul that he addresses it in, in at least four different letters. Because love is so important to the Apostle Paul. Remember chapter 13? The generosity of the church, of any church, is a way of reflecting the grace of the gospel itself and the love of God in the people of God. The generosity of a church is a way of reflecting the grace of the gospel itself and, and the love of God in the people of God. You will commend um, the Philippians for their generosity. And they probably were among the most persecuted and the poorest, and he will commend them. Well, let's look at the instructions themselves in verses 2, uh, 3, and 4. These are the instructions themselves. Remember that Corinth is a, is a very wealthy city. Um, chapter 11, if you remember that chapter about uh, the Lord's Supper, it indicates that there were some there in the church who had achieved at least some measure of wealth. 
so they were um, feasting on the Lord's Supper while others were going without. You might remember that. And so there's, there's some measure of wealth within the church at Corinth. And so generally speaking, this is not a poor church. And as Paul gives these instructions, we can clearly see uh, his, his seasoned wisdom. We can see his pastoral heart as he lays out this, this very practical ministry. Notice as I, I'm going to read verse 2 again in a second, but notice as we read these verses, there's no cheesy gimmicks. There's no emotional pleas. Um, just simply the truth that a need has to be met and that the Corinthians can play a role in meeting that need. Let's start with the manner. So in the instructions, the manner of the collection. Verse 2 says this, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. This verse is um, just some straightforward instructions so that the collection could be done more efficiently. Um, on the first day of the week, Sunday, as the Greek pagans would put it, a collection was to be made. Now, by this time, um, the, Lord, the, uh, the Christians had made it their habit of meeting on what, what the Apostle John would call later in, in the book of Revelation, the Lord's Day. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it puts it like this, on the first day of the week, this is Luke writing, he says, when we were gathered together to break bread, which is shorthand for Acts 2.42, the um, they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So this is what they're doing. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So probably after work, on the first day of the week, the church would gather together for the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And by the end of the New Testament, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 1, this, this day, this first day of the week, came to be called the Lord's Day. And so we could say it like this. This day is the Lord's day in the same way that the bread and the cup are the Lord's supper. On that day, Paul says, each of you. And, and just when Paul there says each of you, he means each of you. Each of you um, are to gather together and give. And again, this goes back to, to those who believe that they cannot give. Paul is encouraging each of them to give something. Let me divert just a little bit here and, and remind you of a, of a story that we read in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Okay, consider this, how this fits into the big picture here. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. First of all, that's an incredible sight, Jesus watching people give. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, uh, said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Here's the point. Jesus, in watching all of this happen, commended the person who gave little. And yet it was all. And so if you think that you cannot give, um, I would challenge you to start. 
I would challenge you to start small. Start sacrificially. And trust God in your giving. So this is the, the manner here on the first day of the week. Um, let's look at the measure of the gift again. So the measure. Uh, uh, let me read verse 2 again. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. This one's pretty easy, right? Something. As, and it actually means, as you have been prospered. And the implication there, and some versions actually insert God in there, it means by providence. As God has been pleased to bless your work, to bless your labors. And remember, Remember that everything that we have, all that we have, are gifts from the Lord. And yet, and yet I want you to consider two Proverbs as we consider these things. So, As we consider that, that phrase, as he has prospered, or as God has prospered him. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4 says this, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And Proverbs 10, 22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So here's why I'm throwing this in here. Generally speaking, we are called to work, right? We are created to work, to work hard, and to work well. And in one measure or another, God will bless. We're called to faithfulness, and he is faithful to meet our needs. Now someday we'll... We'll take a more in-depth look at what the Bible really has to say about riches and poverty. But that's not the point here. Here, Paul is simply calling each of us to give as the Lord has prospered, remembering that it is He who meets our needs. So, the manner, the measure. How about the moment? The moment. Uh, as we said this was to be done, this was to be collected on the Lord's day. And he, he actually says each Lord's day is the idea here. Now, he doesn't tell us that it's to be done with the, the passing of some felt-lined wooden bowls, right, in the middle of the service at a certain point, or with a giving box in the back, just that it's to be done when the church gathers. However it works, do this when the church gathers together. In the, in, the tor in the Old Testament law, the offerings themselves were often animal sacrifices, although people also contributed gold and silver and other items for special projects. But the idea is that they brought these offerings to the tabernacle, to the temple. And so following their pattern, that's what New Testament Christians are instructed to do. You bring it to the assembly, to the church. He's not saying that once he arrives, um, there should be no offerings taken. It stops once I get there. He's saying, he's saying here, it, really, this is just practical. He's saying, don't scramble to get the collection together when I get there. Just have it ready. But notice what he says in verse 3. He says, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to, to Jerusalem. When I arrive. Paul doesn't know when he's going to get there to pick up the collection. He's going to get into a little bit more detail of his travel plans in the following verses. In verses 5 and 6, he, he hopes to be there by winter, but, but the point is it's probably going to be a little while. I think, I think he's writing this um, with the hopes of two things. Frankly, I think he's hoping for a large collection that will be gathered over time. 
right? There's nothing wrong with that. It is to be used for the work of the ministry. And I also think he's, he's hoping for the participation of all, each of you, he has said. Um, and what he's doing here, by implication, is giving them an opportunity to, to teach and disciple the younger, the less mature members in the practice of generosity. This is a discipleship matter. The, the givings, the collection, the tithes and offerings, whatever we want to call it, it, it's actually a matter of discipleship. Parents, this is a discipleship matter. It is a, it is a training up of your children in the way that they should go matter. Several of you have started your first jobs. This is a matter of growing into maturity by trusting in the Lord with what he has entrusted to you. And then just briefly, the messengers. If you're taking notes, I've used four M's in a row. The messengers, verse 4, or let me read 3 and 4. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul is prepared to have, really, um, whoever the church considers suitable or trustworthy to bring the money to Jerusalem, and he may even accompany them, he says. Now, we know from the, the earliest days of the church in the book of Acts, as the church was starting to grow pretty rapidly, actually very rapidly, um, the Jerusalem church regularly began to face opposition and persecution, and, and then some um, strife and trouble started to arise in the church. It's pretty likely that this gift that he's talking about here is a, is a gift for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Um, in fact, by chapter 8, uh, many Christians have to flee for their lives, but we know that the apostles and others stayed in Jerusalem. The remaining church there was central um, in fact, the, the apostles often would go back and, and in Acts chapter 15, they have a council together to decide about uh, Gentiles. Do they need to convert to Judaism before they can become Christians? And so uh, the Jerusalem church is sort of central uh, to Christianity at this time. And so the, the first missionaries and, and even the apostles passed through Jerusalem. And so uh, the, that church there was central to the support of the mission to the ends of the earth. So that's probably what these funds were for, both for supporting the poor, uh, persecuted Christians still in the city and, and also to, to scatter the funds uh, throughout the earth as the gospel is going. But the church is rightly concerned, the Corinthian church is rightly concerned about the security of the money. It's a, it's a good and valid concern. And so Paul told them to choose the messengers, he says. That reminds us of Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and the choosing of the men who would care for the church widows, right? Acts 6, 3, he, the apostles tell the church, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. These are all, these are all practical considerations that any, any church faces. We, for example, we have put checks and balances in place for accountability, and we, that we, our goal is that we, the elders, the deacons of RBC, we, that we might be above reproach. 
as we've grown, we've had to change some of our policies and procedures in these things. And if you need more assurances, the, he's giving them assurances that the money is taken care of. If you need more assurances, I would encourage you to talk to any of our elders or deacons about how we do it. But let me finish with this. The instructions Paul gives in these four short verses are a master gesture of church unity. This is a master gesture of church unity. For example, he sends Gentile believers with a substantial financial gift to Jerusalem where they will come into, into contact, they will come face to face with a generous gift to Jewish Christians from the, from the mother church, so to speak. He will be able to demonstrate to these people who will see each other face to face, who would not have associated with each other without Christ, he will be able to demonstrate to them that there is not that in Christ there is not Jew or Greek or slave or free, but that they are all one. That they are united in Christ. And then, and then additionally, what this does is it demonstrates the covenant participation of all of God's people from all walks of life. Rich, poor, just starting out in life and marriage, or well-advanced and experienced those just starting your first babysitting jobs or those who have been retired for years. This is always abounding in the work of the Lord. I think I speak for the elders and the deacons when I say that there are three things that mark this church, three characteristics that mark Redemption Bible Church, particularly in this area. Unity, generosity, faithfulness. The Lord has continued to bless our church, has blessed you, so that in his plan that we didn't have, we moved 10 miles away, that I could tell you on Christmas Day of last year, we had no thought of that at all. And a week later, the Lord said, I've got a different plan that you weren't thinking of. And we're not strapped. In fact, we don't have a mortgage. That, that's the Lord's doing. And he's used your faithfulness to do it. And so we have been united in this. I've gotten together with pastors and told them the story of, of our moving. And one of the, you know what one of the first questions they ask? Did everybody come with you? Yeah, I think so. The church is here. And so I would say this, may the Lord use the resources that he has provided to further, to continue to further his kingdom. And we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you um, that you have entrusted such a great task to us that you are using ordinary means to advance your kingdom. Lord, and the ordinary means are even just when we take an offering. As we gather together and as we send, um, 
some money away in some plates, and those go to the bank, and Lord, then they are used to, to, to further the kingdom here in Bell Fountain and, and even around the world as we support missionaries. And Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us as we consider this, this next year of how we might even expand um, our mission work as we consider how we might help more and, and serve better with uh, our local mission here at New Path and, and here at the church, how we might use the building that you have entrusted to us. And Lord, you're using this ordinary church to build your kingdom, and we are just so grateful that we get to be a part of this. So we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in and through Redemption Bible Church. Father, knowing that, and, and, and as we approach the table this morning, as we come to eat and drink and so proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, that we are doing these things not because, not because we want to be seen giving, not because we want to be seen as philanthropists or, uh, or anything like that, Lord, but because Jesus, for our sake, He who was rich became poor, that he condescended to us to be born in a stable, to live a perfect life as a, as a man, to die, even a death on a cross, that we might live through him. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we come with thankful hearts because they have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.